Whew, why are you doing this, Max? Why couldn't you just stop? Well, because this way you get your job back, you asshole. Come out to Hollywood. Get a job as a reader. Read some scripts. Network a bit. Have a few laughs. Fucking California. Well, welcome back to Classic Coverage, the podcast that looks at classic movies back when... You know what? Screw that. Doesn't matter. Not today. Uh, my name is Max Davison, and I don't want to sound hyperbolic or anything, but this could very well easily be the end of everything. Now, there, there are a lot of things going on right now, and for reasons that I will explain later, I am recording this one live from the vault. That's right, and if you hear the sound of, uh, like right there, some pounding on the door, some people are after me. I can't say why, but, uh, you know, like a good script, we'll throw you right in the middle of things, and then a little bit later, we will rewind and give you some sort of context about why I'm here. For those of you who kept up with the podcast, you'll remember that a few months ago, through an act of God, I was able to finally snag my dream job. Uh, yeah, that's right. I was no longer an unpaid script reader at a major Hollywood studio. Instead, I was now a creative executive at a brand new production company with offices off the lot. Now, I had thought that this job would propel me into the stratosphere of the Hollywood elite, but instead I descended down to yet another concentric circle of development hell. If anything, the job had me reading even more bad scripts in a shorter period of time, and since our company didn't have a deal with any studio, we ran out of money and didn't have, it was very bare bones. And even worse is that I had to share an office with my former intern and current arch nemesis, the nepotistic millennial warlord known as Caleb. So yeah, it's safe to say that this dream job has not panned out as I had hoped. It's, uh, you know, it's the lesson that you learn at the end of the movie, Big. Be careful what you wish for, because you actually might get it. And as great as being a mature adult might sound, in actuality, you wind up as a successful executive working at a toy company with this kick-ass apartment with a big trampoline in the center, and you wind up banging 1980s Elizabeth Perkins, and... Wait, wait, wait what was the moral of Big any anyway? Because that, that sounds pretty awesome. Why would Tom Hanks ever want to be young again? What... What is that movie teaching us? Okay, ne never mind. I can, I can talk about that later. But much like the end of Big, I realized that I needed to go back to where I was to begin with. That, that like true happiness was when I was an unpaid reader on the lot. I mean, you had the golf carts, you had the energy, you had the people around you, and you had that vault. And I, I realized how much I missed it as soon as it was gone. So. so a few hours ago, I told my boss that I was going off to meet with a talented young scribe who I found on the blacklist. And she believed me because, fun fact, every single creative executive in Hollywood right now is having a general meeting with a, quote, talented young scribe that we found off the blacklist. But instead of going over to Earth Coffee to meet with somebody, I went back to that studio and I tried to get my ass on the lot. So I drove up and I told the security guard that you're probably not going to have my name in the system because some jackass intern screwed up my drive on. And so when I walked over to the complimentary telephone to call... I just ran. That's right, I ran onto the lot and I did not stop. So I ducked in and out of the gift shop, lost my tail, and I was scot-free. So I, I walked around the lot and uh, the first thing I did was walk back to that old production company building where I had spent so many years. Yeah, it, it was like going back home. And even though there's a new production company currently settled in those offices, uh, I, I walked in and uh, judging by the movie posters on the wall, they've done a few Nick Cage movies over the past few years, but you know that, that could be anybody. Uh, they were wondering what the hell I was doing here, and so I told them that I was their new college intern named Morgan. And a uh, fun fact, 
Every single production company he had a studio lot right now has a college intern named Morgan. So they did not question me at all. So they let me in, uh, showed me where the coffee machine was, but I already knew. And I walked over to the old intern room and I found that nothing had really changed. There was still that leaky pipe overhead. I turned around the Keurig machine and my initials were still carved into the back right there, MD. And all, the, all these memories started flooding back and, uh, and I urinated all over that room. That's right, they're gonna remember that I was there. So after that move of dominance, I walked outside and I commandeered a golf cart, but I noticed that one of these security guards had started to recognize me, so I cranked that bad boy all the way up to 15 miles per hour and I sped away, and the security guard, who kinda looks like Huey Lewis, started to chase me. He kinda, I think he knew where I was going. I was going back home. And yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon, I made it to the vault. Yes, the vault that holds all the coverage ever written for any script ever submitted to the studio. And despite what you might imagine, the vault is not subterranean. No, it, it is not a bunker. It's actually located on the top floor of a very tall building on this lot. I mean, we're so high up that looking down, the mighty LA River just looks like a trickle from up here. But yeah, the vault is not unlike the room where they left the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders. Just There is coverage everywhere you can look, left, right, up, down. You're just seeing files of papers that have been filed away for decades and decades. It's it's a beautiful room. It's, it's awesome. And I don't use that word like your typical intern would. I mean, this is actually awe-inspiring. It is. It's glorious. I walked in not thinking I was ever going to see this room again, and, uh, well... When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. Benefits of an overpriced liberal arts education. So I ran into this room, I locked myself in, I've barricaded the door, and no one is getting in here. Okay, I am the fly in the ointment, I am the monkey in the wrench, I am the pain in the ass, and I am putting the word rage back into cover rage. You know, security, they have finally found me, it sounds like. Okay, they are, they've been pounding on the door for a while, and they're going to get in here at some point. So there's a ticking clock and some serious stakes right now going on. So just in case I don't make it out of here, or I make it out of here in custody, uh, I have alerted my friend and the composer of our theme music, Noah Goldberg, that uh, if something should happen to me, he will upload this episode to iTunes so you can hear the story, you can hear what happened. Uh, uh, Noah, I don't think I've told you this, but my SoundCloud information is as follows. Username KubrickFan359, and the password is capital M Michael Bay Sucks, and that's spelled with an X at the end. So log in, upload this, and let the people know what happened. So the main reason that I have come back to the vault isn't just for a trip down memory lane. No, 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 no. I have written up a list of demands, and I have slid them under the door to security. And if they want me out of here, if they want me out of here before I set fire to all of the coverage here, they're going to have to meet my demands, okay? Demand number one, I want my job back. I want once more to be an unpaid script reader at a production company on this studio lot, uh, preferably at uh, Peter Chernin's production company, uh, mainly so I can talk to him about when he used to run the studio, and also I can talk to him about when he ran the Dodgers in the mid-90s and ask him how the hell he thought that trading Mike Piazza away to the Marlins was a good idea. I mean, you have a Hall of Fame catcher who hit 370 at a pitcher's park, and a once-in-a-generation player goes to Florida for, like, Gary Sheffield and Bobby Bonilla. Oh, my God. Uh, never mind. Uh, but that's, that's number one. Number two, I want my own personal coffee machine. No more of this cake-up bullshit, okay? 
I've looked over at a few models at Bed Bath & Beyond, and there's an espresso machine that is very fairly priced, but also very efficient. And you know what? I will even chip in my own 20% off Bed Bath & Beyond coupon, okay? That's what I'm willing to give in this equation. And third, I want a new copy of Final Draft's screenwriting software. I've been running 6.0 for the past year, and I'm pretty sure that 9.0 just came out. And, uh, you know, it'd be good to have an upgrade. And, uh, and that's that. That is all. Either I get my job back as a reader or I will burn the vault to the ground. And uh, I still won't say which studio I am currently at, but uh, let's just say that my act of arson might be compared to Guy Fox. Got that? Although, you know, come to think of it, I should have asked for a lot more in my demands. I should have asked for a producer to actually read my Christian Leitner biopic script and give me notes on it. You know, uh, is it too late to... You know what? It is. I'm sticking with this, and I'm not going to blackmail my way into a writing career. I'm not Cameron Crowe. So as the security guards continue to pound down the door, we've got a little bit of unfinished business, people. Because you might remember last time I realized there was one last great script that I did not read the original notes on. So as security continues to get closer and closer, we're going to take out one last bit of classic coverage, and we're going to read the original notes on Die Hard. Script title, Die Hard. Screenwriters, Stevie D'Souza and Jeb Stewart. Based on the novel, Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. Genre, action. Draft date, July 12, 1986. Page count, 137. Logline, a tough New York cop attempting to reconnect with his estranged wife in California is caught up in the action when her office Christmas party gets hijacked by terrorists. Comments. Note, this novel was originally intended to be a sequel for Arnold Schwarzenegger's Commando, but producer Joel Silver has submitted this as a brand new property. He hopes that by some amazing coincidence, this can work as its own franchise. And as luck would have it, amazing coincidences are integral to the plot of this screenplay. The entire story hinges on the improbable premise that John McClane would just happen to be at his wife's Christmas party at the exact same time that terrorists take the building hostage, and he would just happen to be the only man left unaccounted for, and he is also a cop, and by the way, this is happening on Christmas Eve of all days. But if you can look past that, and that is a sizable if, this script is a well-structured action tale with just the right amount of personal touches to make the familiar story seem more engaging. The plot is fairly generic. You've seen this before. It's Towering Inferno meets Dog Day Afternoon. A one-man wrecking crew is working his way through a building of terrorists before they steal a fortune in bearer bonds. But the characters are what make it work. John McClane is a good, if unexceptional, protagonist, given just enough edge and personality quirks to differentiate him from your typical Arnold or Stallone or Charles Bronson character. Early on, we make it clear that he is a fish out of water in California. He's a working-class cop who rides in the passenger seat of a limo rather in the back. He's a simple man not needing frills. At Nakatomi Plaza, we learn that John's estranged wife, Holly, is now going by her maiden name, Gennaro. It's an apt bit of visual characterization, although a bit on the nose. McLean goes through a series of escalating labors, facing off against muscular German terrorists, getting shot on the roof, attempting to radio the police, walking over broken glass, and an explosion that levels the building's top few stories. The script puts him through the ringer, to the point of overkill. Yet the writers do an admirable job of keeping up the pace, the script was a breezy read, and finding more and more sources of conflict in what is essentially a self-contained action movie. 
While visceral, the broken glass scene is rather shoddily set up on page one of the script when a fellow plane passenger advises McLean to take off his shoes and make fists with his toes. It's a bit clunky in telegraphing that this extraneous conversation will later be important to the plot. It's unclear if McLean's dialogue is intentionally corny or if the writers are engaging camp. He talks to himself and adopts a Roy Rogers cowboy persona, and at one point he mocks our villain with, Sorry Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double Jeopardy where the scores can really change? And note, this is not how Jeopardy works. Every contestant on that game show goes to double Jeopardy. There is no choice. Our antagonist, Hans Gruber, is much more engaging than the lead. Perhaps this script would be more intriguing if it were told from the point of view of Hans, showcasing how we put together this seemingly foolproof plot. Gruber shows up on page 20, coinciding with the first act break. Hans is well-mannered, well-educated, and shares a tailor with Yasser Arafat. I'm not entirely sure what motivates him other than capitalistic greed. I was expecting a third act twist revealing that he had a deep-seated vendetta against Takagi. Gruber is always one step ahead of McLean, sufficiently making our hero into an underdog. Gruber waits for the FBI, knowing that they will provide his mode of escape. He uses McLean's attempts at radioing as a way of locating our hero. And later, Gruber deduces that Holly is John's wife and a source of leverage. This role would, however, require a very talented actor who can pull off both the German and a convincing fake American accent. There are plenty of supporting characters orbiting McLean and Gruber. Argyle is on his first day as a limo driver, which, in yet another coincidence, echoes John's fish-out-of-water experience. He spends the majority of the script simply sitting in the limo, but in Act 3 we get Chekhov's Argyle as he comes up big in the garage, hitting the terrorist getaway van, and finally paying off. There's slimy journalist Thornburg trying to get the jump on the story, his urgency mirroring McLean's. Sergeant Powell is the unlucky cop who happens to be dispatched to Nakatomi Plaza. Wrong place, wrong time might as well be a running gag. Powell's initial appearance leans heavily on cop stereotypes. He's buying Twinkies instead of donuts. But that is later undercut by the revelation that he accidentally killed a kid on the line of duty. Okay. This attempt at giving him depth feels tacked on, and I'm not sure what it adds to his personality or his assistance of John McClain. Then you have FBI agents Johnson & Johnson, who are purely in the script for the no-relation joke. The one character that the script should have highlighted more is coked-up banker Harry Ellis, with such wonderful lines as, Sprechen Sie talk, and, Business is business, you use a gun, I use a fountain pen, page 80. He compares Han's outfit to corporate raiders. He tries to use his Reagan-era art of the deal to talk McLean down and find the detonators. Ellis only gets about five pages of glory before being taken out. The script could have used him so much more as both a social commentary and an unlikely anti-hero. Two concerns arise when thinking about how to market this script. The first is the considerable use of profanity that prevents us from getting a PG-13 rating, which is key for success in this genre. John even has a running gag involving a more profane version of Yippie Kaye, MFR. The second concern is the title. What does Die Hard even mean? John McClane doesn't die, he survives. The words Die Hard might be too abstract and confusing. Maybe we stick with the novel's original title, or we pick something more appropriately Christmas themed. While this is a good one off story, is there sequel potential to this script? It seems fairly open and shut. Not sure where we can take this for future installments barring some long-lost Gruber relation seeking a vendetta. Recommendation. And y you know what? I don't care. No, I, I don't 
really care if this reader gave Die Hard a pass or a consider because it doesn't matter in the end. It was a good movie and it shouldn't matter if, you know, some reader in the 80s thought that it was a little bit derivative or thought that the characters were bland. Readers can be and are most of the time wrong. I mean, does it matter if some reader in the 70s thought that the leads of Animal House were too unlikable? And here, uh, here's some coverage that said that Fast and the Furious was just a ripoff of Point Break. Very true, but ultimately inconsequential. And here, uh, here's what some reader thought about the Catherine the Great biopic from The Blacklist a few years ago. Okay. And here's a good one. Here's what some intern thought about a... They thought about a script called Thaw. Yeah. I guess I've been part of the problem this whole time, haven't I? But maybe it isn't too late to change. You know, to stop being a, a mindless leech on society. You know, only commenting on things with the intent of tearing them down, you know. Maybe I can stop being a, a sheep or a second-hander. That's right. You know, I'm, I'm going to push myself forward on my own accord and do something great with my life, you know. I think that, that was the moral of uh, the Fountainhead movie, you know, the one that starred Burt Lancaster. That was Gary Cooper, asshole. Ah, ah. so it would seem that security has almost uh, made their way through my barricade. And also, they seem to be cinephiles. Ah, so... I guess my options now are either I can accept the job as an unpaid intern in a job where my opinion probably will be wrong and won't matter, or I can go back to work at a third-class production company, or I can get arrested. Well, as I attempt to determine whether or not there's a fourth option out of there, I'm going to leave you as I always do. My name is Max Davison, reminding you as always that even the classics use- Oh shit, they've got in here! Happy trails, everybody! Fade out.